If you did not open up with Hunter to Esther chapter 4, go ahead and open there. We're going to spend our time tonight walking through Esther chapter 4. If you haven't been with us on Sunday nights, we've been walking through the book of Esther. We've made it a tradition here at Great Oaks when we get to the fall, last few months of the year. Uh, we walk through a Bible life and just reminds us that uh, people who have the same number of hours in the day as us have come before us and made the same types of hard decisions that we've made along the way and we're trying to make along the way and helps us Maybe as adults, we ask different questions, maybe see things a little differently. Some people's experience is they talk about these Bible lives and Bible class, and they don't talk about them ever again. We don't want that to be our experience. God hasn't put a children's section in the Bible, an adult section in the Bible, and so we're trying to learn this year uh, from the book of Esther. And what we've seen so far, if you remember King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, uh, he decided to get rid of Queen Vashti for reasons that were silly. But what happened, they began looking all over the citadel of Susa to start with, for the beautiful ladies, for someone to come be the next queen. Esther is beautiful. She's growing up in the citadel area, and so she gets pulled into this. And as they go through the process, she's chosen to be queen. And things seem good. She, this seems like a, a fairy tale type thing. But Esther's biggest moment in life is not becoming queen. In fact, uh, we'll see much bigger things out of Esther including in tonight's chapter, uh, one of the biggest moments of her life. Things get really scary in chapter 3, what we studied last week. So a man named Haman. Haman gets put second in charge of the whole kingdom. And this is the kingdom of Persia, the most powerful kingdom in the world. He's second in charge, and everyone is supposed to bow to him. But Mordecai, Esther's cousin, who's raised her because her parents died somewhere along the way, he's not bowing to Haman. Seems to be because he's a man of faith, believes in God. He tells people, I'm a Jew, so I'm not going to bow to this man. Haman is so angry by this that he not only goes after Mordecai, he tricks the king into putting an edict out where everyone can kill the Jews in the whole empire. He casts lots called the Pur. That's where the Feast of Purim is going to come from by the end of the book. He casts lots, and maybe he didn't know, as we said last week. Proverbs 16, says, God controls the lot, the, the cast of the lot. And that lot was 11 months out, so God gave plenty of time for his plan to all come together. But he's cast a lot for a day in which everybody's going to kill the Jews. This is an existential threat to God's people. And so as chapter 3 ended, you might remember that last verse, verse 15, the king and Haman are sitting down to drink, perhaps toasting, perhaps celebrating their success of what they've put together, while everybody else is in confusion. What is happening? Why would we have this edict to kill all of the Jews? And that's where we left off. And so tonight, as we walk through chapter 4, I've called tonight Anxiety, Fear, and Faith Decisions. And we'll do this like we've done all these. We're going to walk through the section of Scripture, do some Bible reading together, try to point out some things as we go. And then I've got four lessons there at the end for tonight that I hope we'll take with us. Uh, let me just say this about chapter 4 before we jump into it. With every one of these Bible lives, there comes at least one section where, where I know going into the week of study, I cannot do justice to this section. There are some sections that people of faith have just leaned on so much through the years. And there's a depth of history and a depth of emotion that comes with some of these passages that uh, maybe no one single lesson can do justice to it. I'm not going to claim to be able to do justice to chapter 4 tonight. But what I hope 
what I hope is by revisiting it, by just walking through it, letting it speak to us again, that it can encourage our faith the way it has encouraged God's people for thousands of years. And I I hope we'll come away encouraged tonight. So let's walk through chapter 4. The first thing that happens, you have Mordecai and the Jews in agony. The edict has gone out. It's gone all over the empire. Remember, in all the different languages, on this certain day, we will kill the Jews. We will take their stuff for plunder. Seemed crazy to everybody who saw it, but the Jews had enough enemies that people were glad uh, to be ready for that. So verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes. Remember, that was a sign of mourning in Bible times. You would tear your clothes as a sign of agony and pain. He put on sackcloth and ashes, another act of sadness and agony. So he's not even wearing normal clothes. He puts on sackcloth, pours ashes on his head, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. Now in our culture, we would look at that, even as terrible a situation as this is, we would say, yeah, that's not how, it's not how we act when we're, when we're hurting. We're, we're a much more hide-that-stuff type of culture. Probably shouldn't be, but we are. Now, first century, and then, sorry, we're 475 B.C. here. Bible times, Jewish people, Middle Eastern people, this is very common. When you're in pain, you're open about it, and you're crying out loud, and that's accepted. And so that's what Mordecai is doing. He's, he's wailing loudly, bitterly, walking around the area. You notice verse 2, he went as far as the king's gate... For no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. That's an interesting rule. Somewhere along the way, the king had decided, if you're wearing sackcloth, if you're in pain and suffering, you don't cross my gate. I guess it was, you don't bother the king with your problems type of thing. You can can be sad outside, but once you cross here, no sackcloth. So Mordecai's going around, he's sad. Remember again, if you haven't been with us, Mordecai is Esther's first cousin, who's older and has raised her. And verse 3, it goes beyond Mordecai. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. So the Jews everywhere are doing the same thing. The only thing that's added here, if you notice, is fasting. We're going to see that come up a couple times here in chapter 4. Uh, Fasting in the Bible was not just a a health, weight loss type of thing. Fasting was a time of drawing near to God. It was a time of saying, I'm not going to eat or I'm not going to drink or both, or I'm only going to drink water, something like that, so I can spend special time in prayer before God. It was a special time of seeking God. And, And something that you find in the New Testament as well. When they appoint elders in Acts chapter 14, as in all the different cities, said they, they appointed them and, and committed them to serve with prayer and fasting. Perfectly acceptable today. Uh, you, it's something that if you, if you have blood sugar issues, understand. You might want to talk with doctors and other things about that. But perfectly acceptable to go before God in a, in a special time of drawing near to Him. And we're going to see that several times here. The Jews are doing that. They're drawing near to God. They're hurting. They're scared. There's been a a death warrant put out for all of them all over the empire. And they're weeping, wailing, fasting, just like Mordecai, sackcloth and ashes. Second thing that happens, Esther tries to comfort. And Mordecai explains and urges Esther to act. 
What's interesting, Esther's the queen, but she doesn't know what's going on. It's one of those things where you would think, you would think she would know. You would think she would know all the rules that are going on, but perhaps... Perhaps we know how this works. Just because it's your family doesn't mean you know what's going on. Just because it's your workplace doesn't mean you know what's going on. Just because it's your church family doesn't mean you know what's going on. Esther's queen, how much of that is a ceremonial role in the Persian Empire? I'm not sure I know. But she has no clue that this kill the Jews warrant has gone out all over the empire. All she hears is, verse 4, Esther's maidens, you know, she's got people that, that attend to her, and her eunuchs, the males who, who help take care of her and protect her, they come and they tell her that Mordecai is going around hurting. And so she, notice the wording here, the queen writhed in great anguish. She loves Mordecai. She hurts when he hurts. She doesn't know why he's hurting, but it hurts her. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Um, in some ways, it makes me laugh. Maybe it should make me laugh, but uh, it's, it's not that he didn't have clothes. Like, that wasn't the problem. He, he, has, he has torn his clothes, and he's, he's put on sackcloth, but she is trying to say, here, here's some nice clothes. Put on some clothes. Take off the sackcloth. He says, I don't, I don't want those. So she's trying to help. She's trying to comfort. He don't want anything to do with it. Then Esther summoned Haytack. I, I had to look up the place I looked to try to pronounce some of these names says you pronounce this Haytack. So I'm going to do my best to pronounce it because he's an important person here. He's one of the king's eunuchs who helps take care of Esther, whom the king had appointed to attend her, you see there in verse 5, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Notice that. She doesn't know. Why are we sad? Why are we crying? Why, why won't we accept clothing that I'm trying to send to comfort you? And so Haytack went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Remember, you can't pass the king's gate, but he's out in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. I imagine he told him about Haman, how he wouldn't bow to Haman, and how Haman was angry, and how Haman made up this scheme. He told him the whole story. He told him the exact amount of money, the 10,000 talents of silver, that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Remember, Haman had gone to the king and said, there's people in your empire who don't follow your laws. And it's not to your benefit to let them stay here. So tell you what, I'll pay for it. Remember, that was his offer. I'll pay for them to just be gotten rid of. The king eventually said, no, I'll, we'll cover it. Don't worry about it. But you just do what you need to do. And so Haman had written out the edict and, and signed it for the king and all of that. So he tells him the whole story, even the exact amount of money. And then, verse 8, he gives him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa, the capital city, for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her. Again, she doesn't know. In order, and to order her to go in to the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. If you've been with us for this study, you remember in chapter 2 it came up a couple times that Mordecai had told Esther, don't tell them you're a Jew. As they're trying to decide who's going to be the next queen, as they're trying to decide all those sorts of things, that might hold you back, seems to be the fear. So don't, don't tell them. But here, apparently, maybe last chapter Mordecai has, has risen in spiritual boldness in some way. Because he's not bowing to Haman. But here he's telling her, we need you. We need you to go into the king 
And we need you to plead with him for your people. This is the time, he says, to tell them who you are, that you are a Jew, that this is your people that are in trouble. Go talk to, to the king. And, and so he sends the text of the edict to Esther. Esther's got some concerns, the next section, these next few verses. Esther's concerns. Verse 9, Hatak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. So this, I think as a, as a picture of this, as a young person growing up going to Bible classes, I think I always pictured this conversation with Esther and Mordecai in a room, uh, face-to-face uh, with these, these powerful biblical words that are going to come out in these next few verses. But this conversation goes back and forth between a messenger, between Hatak. He's going back and forth. Here's what he said. Here's what she said. Here's the edict. It's, it's going back and forth. And so Hatak comes back, gives Mordecai's words to Esther, Esther spoke to Hatak and ordered him to reply back to Mordecai. So we're sending these things back and forth. Here's what she said. So here's here's my worry about that, Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. Do you hear a worry? I, I understand it. She says, there, there's this rule here in Persia. You don't just go to the king. The king calls you. You, you don't decide, how hey, I'm going to go talk to the king. Even if you're the queen, you don't decide, how hey, I'm going to go talk to the king today. The rule is, you don't come into that inner court. If you do you're going to be killed. Unless the king feels merciful and decides on that day, we won't kill them for breaking the law of entering the king's court like they're not supposed to. And he extends this golden scepter that he holds out. And she says, and he hadn't called for me for a month. We've already seen Ahasuerus can be real fickle. He can make silly decisions. He's not afraid to hurt people, get rid of people. You understand Esther saying... Hey, this is a risk to my life. He's gotten rid of queens before. That's why I'm here. This is a risk to my life to even talk to him about it. Who who knows what he'll say, but but to even talk to him. I can't just go talk to him. And so they tell those words back to Mordecai. Again, we're going back and forth. Here's where Mordecai issues a faith-centered challenge to Esther. He's already said... Here's here's our problem. Here's what's happened. Here's the edict. Please go talk to the king. Help us. She sends back, I'm worried. Mordecai issues a challenge to her. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. I guess you hear what he's saying there. Eventually someone's going to find out, Esther, who you are. Eventually someone's going to connect the dots and the law says to kill you just like anybody else. Haman is going to want to kill you just like he wants to kill anyone else, especially if he knows our connection. You you can't escape even in the king's palace. Verse 14, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. 
And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. I love the faith in that verse. A few, let me just point out a few things. If you remain silent, if you decide, I'm not going to go talk to the king, deliverance will arise from somewhere else. Do you hear the faith behind that? We're God's people. God has made promises to His people. He's promised that the son of David is going to reign on the throne forever. He's promised he's going to be alongside us. If you don't step forward, Esther, God's going to save His people. But we're going to die. You're going to die. You and your father's house will die because you didn't step forward in the moment. And then that last phrase is one that has meant so much to people of faith for so long. Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Maybe this is why you're here. Maybe this is why the whole thing with Vashti happened and and they had to look for a new queen. Maybe maybe this is why the whole thing with with your parents passing away and you living here with me, here in Susa, for you to be at this place, for you to be chosen queen, for all these things. that Maybe this is why you're here. God has been connecting dots long before we even knew it. Maybe you're not here just so people can say, wow, you're queen. Maybe you're here because God knew this moment was coming. People always notice the the who knows part of that. Mordecai doesn't say, this is why you're here. He's not God. (laughs) One one thing that's amazing about Esther, remember, it doesn't even mention the name of God. It it hints at it. We're fasting, but we don't mention specifically prayer or God. God, deliverance will arise from another place. That's based on a promise of God. It's almost like Esther is intentionally trying to show us what providence looks like from this side of eternity. Well, we don't know what God's plans are. And so Mordecai says, maybe, maybe this is the pieces coming together. That's what God's people have always said. Maybe this is the pieces coming together. Makes me think of people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who we mentioned last week, who stand before Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody's supposed to bow down before the, the idol, and, and they don't. They play the music, and everybody bows, but they do not bow because we don't bow to idols. We worship God. And so the king calls them in, and they say, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer about this. Remember what he said was, we're going to play the music again, and we're going to give you another chance to bow down to this idol. They say, we don't, we don't need to answer you if it be so. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But even if He does not, let it be known to you, O King, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love the courage in that passage. I also love the humility. They don't say, we know what God's going to do. They don't say, we know God has put us here for this moment for, so that we will be an example of faithful courage for all time. They don't, they don't know that. All they know is, it's not right to bow down to this idol, so we're not going to do that. God can save us, and He might. But if He doesn't, we're not going to betray Him by bowing down to this idol. Or Paul in the New Testament. You might remember a, a servant, a slave named Onesimus has run away from Philemon. Somewhere in all that, he meets Paul. He becomes a Christian. Paul sends him back to Philemon in the letter, asking if he can come back and serve Paul. Just just be there for Paul to help him as they spread the gospel. And as he sends him, verse 15, he says, Perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. 
No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Do you, hear, you see that perhaps in verse 15? Maybe this is why God allowed all these things to happen. So Philemon could become a Christian. And now he's, now he's, one, now he's a brother in Christ, much deeper than a servant, a part of the spiritual family. What we know from our side of eternity, what we know is God is working. What we know is Proverbs, or excuse me, Romans 8.28 says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We know God's working, bringing things together, but we don't know all the exact pieces. We don't know all the timing. We don't know the reasons. And so Mordecai says, who knows? Maybe this is why you are right where you are right now. Esther gives a faith-centered response, and it's a faith-centered decision. So he gave a faith-centered challenge. God's going to save his people. (laughs) He's going to save them. Uh, But if you don't step forward, it may cost you your life. Esther gives a faith-centered decision. I don't know. I picture in my own mind her hearing through Haytack what Mordecai said, maybe pacing back and forth a few times and just thinking about it. Maybe she didn't. Maybe she knew what she was going to do right away. But she sends back some of the great words in all Scripture. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. And again, this isn't, she's not saying don't eat or take in calories for me. She's saying pray to God for me. Don't, don't eat, don't drink, or just water, however the fast would have been done. Fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. It's hard not to love that last part, isn't it? I'm going to do what's right. And if I die, I die. But I'm going to do what's right. So Mordecai goes away, does just as Esther had commanded him. So he goes and gathers the Jews together. We're going to fast. We're going to pray. Doesn't mention prayer, but we're going to fast. We're going to pray for three days for Esther. She's going to do the same. Her maidens are going to do the same. And then she's going to try to go talk to the king. Who knows what he'll say? But she's going to try to go talk to the king. Um, And if she dies, she says, if I die, I die. What do we get out of all that? Number one, I've got four things I hope we can take home from Esther chapter 4. Number one, when we feel shocked and fearful, try to remember this, God is not. He's not shocked and fearful. As Esther chapter 4 begins, the edict has gone out. Everybody's in confusion. Everybody's scared. You know who's not scared? God's not scared. God knew this was coming. Everybody's surprised. God's not surprised. God knew this was going to happen. God knew the bad decisions that would lead to it. God knew the evil and the sin that would lead to it. God is not scared. Uh, Sometimes it helps me to remember whatever's going on, as crazy as it might seem to me, as fearful as it might seem to us, God's not surprised by this. God's not surprised when a pandemic hits hits the earth. God's not surprised when war breaks out. God's not surprised when a job is lost. God's not surprised when financial issues come up. God's not surprised when relationships fall apart. He's saddened by a lot of those things, maybe all of them. He's not surprised. Like He knew. He knew the decisions that would lead to the things that happened. As Psalm 139 puts it, God knows it all before it happens. 
He says, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Notice verse 4. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. God knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows your words before you speak them. He knows all your ways before you live them. He says, you've enclosed me behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. God, you're guiding me all along the path. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. It helps me to remember that. That whatever I'm facing, and I, I, you almost wish you could impart that back to Mordecai and Esther. I hope, I hope you hear that in Mordecai's faithful response. Deliverance is coming from somewhere. I hope what's behind that is God knew this was coming. I wish we knew what plan B was. I'm sure God had a plan B ready. I wish we knew what plan C was. I'm sure he had one ready. We know about Esther because she followed through in faith. God was going to do something. As Psalm 46 goes on to say, and, and, and a similar thought from Psalm 139, God is our refuge and strength, a present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Even if the whole earth is falling apart, he says, we're not going to be afraid because God is our refuge and strength. He knew this was coming. He was preparing for it long before we knew it was even here. And verse 10 will go on to say, cease striving. Your translation may say, be still and know that I am God. God is planning. Whatever you're facing, whatever you will face, as you face it, keep in mind, God knew this was coming. And He's already been putting pieces in place long before I could do anything. Number two, may we never underestimate the power of one faithful person. Maybe we're all tempted to think, you know, who, who am I of all the, the billions of people in the world, the billions that have come and gone, um, who, who am I to make any sort of difference? I saw a quote in one of the sources I've been looking at uh, this, in studying for these lessons. Quotes a man named Edward Everett Hale, and this is what he says. He says, I'm only one, but I am still one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. And I like that. No, you can't do everything. But there's something you can do. And God has you what, with what you can do. We read the parable of the talents earlier tonight. God has given you things that you can do. Don't hide what God has given you. Um, several times in Scripture, God is looking for one. And He can't find one. In Jeremiah 5, God tells Jeremiah, Go through the streets, Jeremiah, see if you can find one. Just one faithful person. And they're not there. Ezekiel 22, Ezekiel says, speaking for God, I was looking for one person, just one person, to stand in the gap and pray for my people. And there's not even one. God is looking. As 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, God is looking through the whole earth, looking for faith, looking for those whose heart is completely His, so He can support them, so He can put them in the right place. And sometimes there's not even one. Why don't we make sure we're the one in our place, that where God has put us? There is, there is some spiritual, faith-filled purpose, and, and probably multiple ones, multiple purposes, for all of us 
that God is ready to support if we'll just give our lives to Him, if we'll be the one in our place. As, they, as Paul says about uh, David in Acts chapter 13, David served the purpose of God in his own generation. That's all you can do is serve the purpose of God in your generation, in your time, in your place. Yes, you're just one. We're all just one. But God can do so much through one faithful person. And you're seeing that in Mordecai, and we're seeing that in Esther. One person living faithfully, God puts them in the right position, and He can do good things through that. Number three, when big fearful moments come, be diligent in asking God to lead the way. Never really thought about it before, but it is interesting that Esther didn't get the word from Mordecai and say, you know what, I'm going to talk to the king tonight. That would have been admirable. That would have been impressive to say, I'm not going to wait another second. This is important work. It's time to go talk to the king. But she didn't do that, did she? She said, we're going to pray for three days before I do anything. And that's the right response. May you and I, we face those scary moments, those crossroad moments, those what am I going to do moments in life, and there's going to be a lot of them. Your decisions and and other people's decisions are going to lead your path and, and decide your path. Don't act before making sure you've asked God to lead the direction, to lead the way. You see that and just how blessed we are compared to the king of Persia here in this chapter? Mordecai's not allowed to go into the king's gate wearing sackcloth. You're not, you're not allowed to just go talk to the king. Esther, the queen, is not allowed to just go talk to the king. And yet we have a God who made everything, who says his eyes are toward the righteous, his ears attend to their prayer. God is calling us into his presence all the time. And sometimes we say, you know, I'm too busy to pray. How sad is that? As, as a book title I saw years ago has always stuck with me, uh, too busy not to pray. You're too busy not to pray. If you think you're doing a lot, if you think you're doing important things, you're you're too busy not. You're you're too busy not to stop and ask God to lead the path. Or or you're going to mess it up. Or it's going to go the wrong direction. If you're doing important stuff or trying to do important stuff, you want God leading the way on that path. And so God is asking us so different from the kings of the world, asking us to come into his presence. He's making promises about prayer. As you and I make decisions like Esther, let's say, let's, let's pray about it, and let's pray about it, and let's pray about it. And then we're going to move forward. I love the prayer and fasting part of this event in her life. Um, that's what you see again there in verse 16. You all fast, we'll be fasting, and then I'll go talk to the king. If I die, I die. And then the last thing. May you and I live with spiritual courage. There's a lot of things to like about Esther. Before chapter 4, we admire that she's overcome tragedy in her life, losing her parents somewhere along the way. We see that she's beautiful. We see that everybody who meets her sees something special in her. We've seen she's humble. She's still listening to to the dad who raised her even after she's queen. We've seen a lot of good things, but the the element that comes out here in chapter 4. This is the reason we love Esther. And this is the characteristic that's going to rise to the top for the rest of the book, is that she acts in spiritual courage, that she says, I'm going to do the right thing. We're going to pray about it for three days. I'm going to talk to the king. And if I die, I die. But this is the right thing. How do you, how do, you do that? How do you build that type of faith? Another quote I came across was from, um, from Winston Churchill. 
As World War II was breaking out, he's Winston Churchill's the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom over England, and they're seeing real evil in Germany and the Nazis, and, and they're close by, and they're going to be bombed, and they're gonna, their lives are going to be in danger. And as Winston Churchill speaks to the nation of England, he says, Let us brace ourselves to our duties, and so bear ourselves, that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. And what he's saying there is, yes, we're scared. And yes, there is evil and fear and worry. But may people in future generations look back and say, when they faced fear and worry and anxiety, that was their finest hour. May you and I face fear and anxiety and worry with faith. I hope future generations will be able to say of us, they faced COVID pandemics. And boy, that was a great hour of faith. They faced losing their job. And boy, they faced it with faith. They faced cancer. And boy, faith was there and led the way. They faced relationship issues. And they faced it with faith along the way. Esther, as the moment comes, she says, I'm going to do what's right. How do, you, how do you build that? Let me suggest a couple things. First of all, we've got to instill in ourselves, I'm going to put what is right above myself. Because sometimes we make decisions based on how do I save myself? What's best for me personally? That's how we make decisions. That's not the way to make decisions. A better way to make decisions is what is right Esther could have said, hey, I'm the queen. I'm probably going to be okay. I know Mordecai says, you know, you you may not be safe even in the palace, but I'm the queen. I'll probably be okay. Why would I want to give up all this, this luxury and all that I have? Uh, Instead, she says, I'm going to do what's right, and I'm going to put that above myself. May you and I do the same. Don't just think about yourself. Think about what is right. And then as as you choose right, yield the consequences to God. You know what she's saying? If I perish, I perish. If I die for doing the right thing, then I die for doing the right thing. I want that to be my attitude. If, I, if it costs me something to do what's right for God, then it costs me something to do what's right for God. But I'm going to stand with Him. story I always love, and I bring it up semi-regularly here in preaching, is uh, King Amaziah, 2 Chronicles 25. He's hired some men from Israel to be part of his army. But Israel left God long ago. He's with the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom left God long ago. And so the prophet comes to him and says, if if you're going to take these faithless Israelites with you into battle, um, good luck, but you're not going to win. He says, you need to send them home. And Amaziah, verse 9, says to the man of God, well, then what do I do for the hundred talents that I gave to the troops? Like, I've already paid them. It's going to cost me money to just send them home. How silly. Just send them home. And the man of God says to him, the Lord has much more to give you than this. And I love that. God has so much more to give you than a hundred talents. If you're tempted to say, I'm going to cheat so I can pass the test, so I can pass the class. If you're tempted to say, I'm going to steal so I can get a little bit more money so I can have a little bit more in my pocket. If you're tempted to say, I'm going to lie so I can get ahead. If you're tempted to say, I'm going to sin because this seems like the only way out. God has more to give you than that. God has more to give you than the test grade or or the lie or the money or the sin. God is offering bigger things. And if it costs you to do the right thing, then it costs us to do the right thing. If we perish, we perish. 
If it hurts us, we hurts us. If it hurts, it hurts. If we die, we die. But I'm going to stand with God. And that's what Esther says. And we love her spiritual courage. Here in Esther chapter 4, we see why we love Esther. It's not just because she's beautiful. Not even just because she's humble. Not even just because everybody seems to like her. It's because when the moment came, when the moment came that called for it, she showed spiritual, faithful courage. Mordecai says, who knows if this is why you're here? And she says, you're right. Pray for me. And in three days, I'm going to go talk to the king. Whatever it costs me, I'm going to do the right thing. May you and I, may we do the same. As we start a new week, let's enter it with faithful courage, trusting God will guide the path and lead the way. Tonight, if we can help you in any way in your faith, please let us know. We're, we're trying to live for God. We're trying to help each other live for God. If you've wandered off the path in any way, we hope you'll come back to God. We hope you come back to Him. The place of strength, the place of faith, the place of what's right. Maybe tonight you're ready to become a Christian. Uh, we're about to sing a song of invitation. This is an opportunity to take a public step of faith. If you'd like to be baptized into Jesus Christ tonight, we'd love to see you make that biggest decision of your life. Maybe you haven't been living for God. Maybe you've let the world pull you off track. Maybe you've let some, some fear of, of the world or some love of sin creep into your life and it's pulling you away from God. Don't stay there. Let us pray for you. Let God get you back on the path you need to be on. If we can help you in any way publicly tonight, you're about to come to the front now while we stand and while we sing. This is my life, it's what I know, and I can't believe that He selected me, Jesus my Lord. It